0: Hi everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Rachel Pether and I'm a senior advisor to Skybridge Capital, based in Abu Dhabi, as well as being the global MC for SALT, a thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of business, technology and public policy. Salt Talks is a series of digital interviews that we launched during the work from home period. And what we're really trying to do with this series is recreate the experience at our salt conferences and discuss with some of the world's leading investors, creators and thinkers. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Michael Frazis, the founder of and managing partner at Frazis Capital based in Sydney, Australia. Prior to founding the firm Michael spent five years in private equity in London after completing internships at Goldman Sachs and the Boston Consulting Group. Michael read chemistry at Oxford University. He has a MSc finance from the London School of Economics and he came first in Australia in the 2006 Chemistry Olympiad. So Michael welcome to Salt Talks. Thanks so much Rachel. I really appreciate you having me on. No, I'm, I'm really excited about this one. And I summarized your biography profusely. So tell me a little bit about your background. You know, you often see people with physics degrees moving into investment management, but perhaps the path from chemistry into finance is a, a little bit less trodden. So tell me a bit about your journey.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, chemistry, I, I was at Oxford about four years, did a year of research. I think I was just one of those people that realized lab work probably wasn't for me. Um, I think Oxford University, this was quite a while ago, 15 years. Since then, Oxford University has really taken off in terms of commercialization of business, um, which, as far as I was aware at the time anyway, didn't really exist in the same way. Um, but chemistry is a messy science. You know, it's, it's liquids, it's solutions, it's complicated, uh, nothing's neat, no system is perfect. And I think that actually applies pretty well to financial markets. You know, there's so many models and ideas and frameworks you can use, but in the end of the day, you have to accept that, you know, we're almost in the future prediction game, and that is messy. and We're dealing with companies and people um, that are really complicated situations. So I think it did help me in that regard.
0: Mm. And I want to pick up on some of those models and frameworks that you use. But, you know, you were just 29 when you founded the company. What drove you to set up and go out on your own?
1: Um, look, I think it was just one of those kids that always knew what he, what he wanted to do and, and, and spent most of my 20s working towards that goal. Um, I think it's probably harder to kind of launch the way you did. You're probably better off launching an established shop. Um, but the good news was, is starting with, you know, almost no capital meant that you were across every single aspect of the business. So not just the investing, but the marketing, very complicated operations and regulatory, um, all the things that are involved in it. And I think that's why a lot of people kind of find it so hard when they move either from a big fund to launch their own, or from an investment bank trading floor, uh, because so many things are looked after for you. You know, it's kind of like the analogy is, you know, it's easy to kind of kick a goal in the park with your friends. It's hard if you're, you know, I guess playing rugby and you're getting beaten up for an hour and then have to do it in front of a crowd and pressure. I feel like that's the difference between kind of trading on your own and, and or trading within a big organisation and coming out and doing it on your own.
0: Mm, you definitely realise how much time you can spend on that kind of back office and administrative side, don't you? It can be quite it's a- important.
1: It's such a critical part of the business. You have to get it right. Um, and it's quite complicated. So people sometimes have to underestimate how much is involved in that part of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And just go- going back to some of the, the models and frameworks that you use to view the world at Fresas Capital Partners, tell me a bit about your strategy and what particularly types of uh, stocks you look at.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we invest long only, mostly in technology and the life sciences, um, about 40, 40 to 50 stocks. Look, our framework is we invest in companies with true customer love and explosive growth. It's a really simple framework, really simple idea. Um, But the reason we chose that is it gives you the right answer to extremely difficult um, and extremely important questions. So you think about all the big controversies in the investment world, whether it's Tesla, Bitcoin, early days Amazon. In Australia, companies like Afterpay. um, Often these were highly controversial stocks. They were generally investing heavily in growth. Um, and, you know, they were heavily shorted. These were, these were stocks which the smartest people in the market often bet against you Fast forward to 2021, and, you know, these companies didn't just do okay. In most cases, they're the best-performing assets in their class. Um, so what we're trying to do is try and figure out how do you identify these things early? Like we were there in Tesla, in, you know, 2013. We were they in Afterpay, you know, six years ago. Um, we, we, we were early identifying, able to identify these things early. And if you think about it, they all had, like, these two things in common. Firstly, they had an extremely devoted customer base. Um, and secondly, they've consistently delivered outstanding results. And um, now both of those things are important. We're very happy to go into more detail in them. Um, but broadly, you know, we, we have a philosophy of no opinions. So if we think something's good and has true customer love, we should be able to see that in the data. We should be able to see it in their revenue growth, their user growth, their gross profit growth, um, their web traffic, their rankings on Amazon Alexa, their Google search trends. All those factors should be combining to show a company that's growing extremely explosively. And that's evidence of that, of that true love. And I can give a few examples if if you think that would be helpful.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. And just from that, there's so many things I want to pick up on and particularly dive much more deeply into that behavioral psychology side of it. But yeah, I'd love you to give me some examples of of those customers that have true customer love and explosive growth. So an example, example everyone will be familiar with is, is a company like Apple.
1: So Think back, I guess, 2009, 12 years ago. Apple launched the iPhone. There was intense competition. People forget now. But you had Nokia, you had Microsoft, you had BlackBerry, as just like, just to pick three. You then had, you know, Samsung, Sony. Huawei, a host of well-funded, extremely well-funded um, companies that were putting out extremely high-quality phones. Um, but there was only one company that people queued outside stores for days in advance just to get the hands of one of the first of 10,000 people with an iPhone. And there was only one company that people like pitched tents, literally capped, you know, looked kind of foolish and silly to people. But also there was this cultural phenomenon around it. And so fast forward what happened over the next or the following like decade or more, you know, everybody else competed on price and features. There were many years in which the smartphone industry lost money other than Apple which was able to charge a few hundred dollars extra for each phone and capture the entire profit margin. So as an example of that true customer love directly translating into fundamentals and creating $2 trillion worth of value. Now this is, to give a bit of an example of, just, just, just step back a bit and just think about how that framework is helpful in this instance, it's extremely complicated 12 years ago to forecast which out of all those amazing well-resourced companies with global Globally significant brands. Which one of those would win? And the answer was simple: was which one did the customers love the most? Which one was growing? Which which was delivering the best results? Um, and that ca- that continued the whole way through. Um, another example is is and this would be very controversial. or this has been a very controversial stock, and that is Tesla. Um, you know, rewind the clock. You know, several years ago, um, it's similar to the smartphone industry, you have a number of amazing companies with top tier engineers. Um, and and globally significant brands. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, Toyota, Volkswagen, Ford. These are some of the best companies in the world, the best brands in the world. But the reality is when it comes down to it, they're all competing on price and features. None of them really has that true customer love. Tesla obviously did. So Elon Musk, love him or hate him, and he was very controversial a couple of years ago in particular. um, He was able to get on stage and sell hundreds of thousands of cars with a simple presentation. That's customer love. Um, yeah. and again, if you fast forward, you know, he grew that production profile effectively from, you know, a couple of thousand eight years ago, but 25,000, 50,000, 50, a 250,000 500,000, you know, close to a million, million cars a year run rate. And that, that is the explosive growth. So you have the true customer love, and then you have the explosive growth. And just to give another example from the auto industry, there are other examples of cars, companies that have that customer love. An example, that would be Ferrari. So on an EV sales basis, Tesla is generally traded roughly around where Ferrari has, which shows there really is something going on. You know, the the companies that do have that real, you know, customer love that does transfer into their valuations and most importantly, it transfers into their, their fundamentals. You know, we look back now in 2021 and the company is doing, you know, 25 times the sales it was doing several years ago when everybody was shorted. And that was the key. That was the key point. That was... That was the clue, you know, the true customer love and that explosive ramp up. Basically, what we're doing in our fund is creating a portfolio of about 45 companies that display these characteristics. And, you know, one of the things we do is we push, I think, explosive growth much further than most people would. So the last time we calculated, we have to make certain adjustments, you know, strip out growth from acquisitions and so on, using the latest quarterlies, maybe adjust for a couple of life sciences companies. Um, But the average portfolio growth rate organically, using latest results, was over 150%. So these companies are 150% bigger than they were last year. You know, last year we we did over 108% net as a fund. I think this financial year we're tracking over 80% net. The reason we've been able to achieve those numbers isn't because we're like smarter than anybody else so we can see the matrix better than anybody else. It's simply because we're backing companies that are systematically and structurally growing at explosive rates. Um, And frankly, taking those revenues and that success from the rest of the market, I hope that gives some kind of flavor of, you know, how we can use that really simple sounding framework of true love and explosive growth to answer really difficult questions like was Tesla long or short, you know, eight years ago or five years ago? Um, Was was Apple going to win? Like who was going to win the smartphone? Uh, well, think, of, think of all the ink that was spilled all those like 100 page reports on the auto industry all the analysts researching smartphones you know assessing each model for the characteristics and their pricing and how they compare to each other and true, true customer love and explosive growth got you the right answer to both those questions and indeed we see that again and again and again and again
0: yeah absolutely I mean Apple's the only phone I've ever stood in queue for like three hours just to get it fixed mm. you know it's got that real that real following and I think the Tesla example is really interesting because, you know, and Elon Musk is still a very controversial figure today, but, you know, he was one of the first. I know that recently there's been a sort of push from the retail side against stocks, uh, stocks that are heavily shorted, but Tesla was kind of the original heavy short, wasn't it, just because of that that polarizing sort of following. And I guess that could really be driven by the people that, that did have that true customer love and the people that didn't really understand how that, those mm-hmm. dynamics were working. I so-
1: yeah, I think, um, I think there's something really fundamental that you've touched on there, which was how heavily shorted Tesla was. There's a really good reason why these companies are both the most heavily shorted and controversial stocks and you know the best returning ones, it's the same reason. And the reason is as simple as these are the companies that have excess, excess consumer demand, you know, the number one problem for every company is actually sales. How do we drive revenue? Um, how do we grow? How do we beat our competitors? Take market share. Like that is the number one problem for any company. Um, there's a very small number of companies, which are the only ones we invest in, that have the opposite problem. They, they sell out of iPhones. You know, they sell out of pre-orders of cars. Um, and to, do, to meet that demand, they have to spend heavily. And they're often spending in the income statement. They're not doing, they are doing CapEx, but they're also spending heavily in the income statement on human capital, on R&D, on sales and marketing, on G&A, you know, all those all those things that are costs. So what's happening is people that come within traditional value lens, see those big cost items and see them as expenses and see the very meager cash flow at the bottom. So software is the best example of this. You know, good software companies probably lose money if you consider stock-based comp, probably generate cash, you know, if you, if you take out stock-based comp. Um, but the rational decision for them is actually to spend all their revenue, all their gross profit dollars on sales and marketing, because they can get a five or 10 times return on that. And so it's really interesting to think that, you know the framework that everyone is using, this value framework gives you the opposite answer to questions like, after Tesla, Shopify, you, know, you could go on all the best companies basically in the world. Um, and the reason for that is they have this explosive demand. Um, they're growing extremely fast. They're investing extremely heavily to meet that demand so it looks like to a traditional investor the cash flow negative in reality they're getting rates of return on that capital far beyond you know what you can get from a chemicals factory or you know some industry that was invented 300 years ago
0: yeah i love the point about capital as well and the the human capital element and i remember speaking to someone in silicon valley about someone like just to pick up on on elon musk the elon musk theme and the the quality of human capital that he attracts, so Tesla, SpaceX, it, mm. it really is. It's it's people that are employees as well. They're really committed to the business as well as the customer. So I guess that's really all tied up in the brand, isn't it? In terms of
1: yeah, and it's, it's you get the smartest people, you get to the right answer. So I'll give you another example for Tesla. You know, they do all their the whole thing's fully integrated with computer systems. So if you but you could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a car, each component could be made by a different different supplier. They all have to stitch them together. So it's really fragile, really difficult to kind of manage that. If they're Tesla, it's all it's all ground up. And you're very you're very right. You know these these companies attract the best talent. You know as well as as well as you know investors and as well as immense demand. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 a very interesting point all all around.
0: You you know you mentioned about the sort of composition of the balance sheet, I guess, and and where the spending is happening. And you look at the last 12 months and all crises really trigger certain changes in behavior. So how do you see psychology as playing into investing, particularly on the behavioral finance side?
1: Yeah, look, there's no doubt. There's something about the market, the way it, you know, forces everybody to panic and capitulate at lows and then Panic buying at the highs. There's something really intrinsic going on. Um, You know, in those panics, like last year, last year, we're we're, we're genuinely long-term. So we stayed fully invested last year. We stayed fully invested in 2.2 moments that mattered. The first one was obviously in March. um, So we didn't play a perfect game. We didn't foresee the crash. If anything, we thought it would be be much milder than it was. Um, But for every dollar of stock we sold, we made sure we bought a dollar of stock or something else. So we didn't change around with our, with our, with our actual dollar exposure. Um, and that ended up, and we are fully ready for a two year bear market that would have likely wiped um, most, most competitors in the industry out um, and brought us to the brink. We are fully ready for that. As it so happened, you know, that, that lockdown of London, New York City, that was a low. So to go to your behavioral psychology moment, the moment of peak panic turned out to be the low. So if you woke up, read the papers and were like, oh, they've shut down London, New York. This looks kind of dangerous. You know, if that was your approach. Uh, I might sell my stocks. You know you actually caused firstly caused that crash. Uh, but secondly, you know that was that was it. And so we recovered, you know within not sure exactly what it was, it was probably four, five, six weeks later, we're back on top. Um, the second moment, and this is probably more important and harder to do, is that later in the year we we're up twenty percent when the market was still down twenty. So we locked in this huge outperformance. Now, people who know the industry like often when you get these like 30 40 percent outperformance, you can lock that in you know you can you can ride the rest of your career on that you can basically buy the market and your chart will always be that much bigger that much bigger better and stronger than 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 your, your peers uh, but it's the wrong it's the wrong answer long term on a 30 to 40 year view you have to stay invested through those rallies as well as through the dips and so we're constantly going back to that decision making you know how do we improve our decision making our process we don't decide what to do in any particular moment. We decide what to do in every single moment like that in the next 30 to 40 years. So sure, often the market, sometimes the market will crash and that will be halfway down, you know, like something we saw in March, that'll be halfway and you can sell and do better out of it. But are you? what is the right answer? You're going to sell every crash? What's that going to do to long-term returns? If you think like that, all of a sudden it's, it's obvious. You know, you cannot be a systematic seller in crashes. Similarly, if you think, okay, Markets up a lot. Sorry, the market's down a lot. We're up a lot. Let's lock this in. Um, if you sell the rallies, you'll also systematically underperform over 30 to 40 years. You have to sit there through both. And so I think that's allowed us to step back from that day-to-day behavioral, you know, tricks that the market plays on you um, and really focus on the long-term by, by making our decision-making um, like that. It's a, it's a really helpful guide for us.
0: There's two really important points that you just made in there that I want to pick up on. You mentioned about not having any opinions as well. And, and one thing that I, I personally tr- struggle with is that we've had this paradigm shift to a networked world. So we we can shoot out from like many media to many media very, very fast. And you almost go to infinity extremely quickly in terms of opinions being you know shouted at you and and so many sources of information And, and you mentioned that you try not to have any opinions so how do you sort of take all this information and particularly how do you use social media within that as well
1: uh, look, we're pretty simple. We simple. Like will we'll just look at the fundamentals. And by fundamentals, I generally mean the, the key KPIs. So, the user growth, the revenue growth, the revenue per user, gross profit margins, things like that. Um, by no opinions, I mean, we won't walk into a room, shake a CEO's hand, and then form a view on the company based on how we think that meeting went. Like, what? There's all cl- clues that we, we picked up on. Similarly, you'll see a lot of people, you'll read a lot of research, sell side research, and also things written by other people on the buy side. Always like, I think. I think this is going to happen next. I think this company is going to do better now. I think that this is happening. The market's got this wrong. I think the market hasn't understood this. What's really going to happen is this. And you all, whenever you see these phrases, which you see again and again, um, that is opinion. What excites us is somebody saying, hey, this, this company's going 20 percent or all the kids are obsessing about this new thing. You know, That is what excites us. And you go, okay, let's, uh, let's look it up. Let's see how the website is doing. And then you see the traffic going up. And then you look at the results and you see revenue growing explosively. And you can see that they're spending a lot of money, but they're also making a lot of gross profit dollars. And every time they spend a few hundred million dollars on sg you know they increase their total revenue by you know, their, their total lifetime value by many times more. You know, that's the thing that excites us. And that's what I mean by like kind of no opinions. So for us to come in and decide, I think this company has true customer love. We'll then go back and look and say, okay, what's it growing at? You know or maybe someone's pitching us a stock or broken they'll be like you know we think this is a really interesting software company and and it's going to grow do really well over the next five years and you look at it and it's growing at 15 percent well if something's growing at 15 percent it can't really be changing the world you know it can't really be lighting the industry on fire it can't really be that important that kind of relevant um whereas like i said our companies are average in our portfolio averaging well over 100 percent these are big companies you know the median market caps over 20 billion Aussies, I guess that's about I mean, 15 billion US. Um, these are not small businesses, they're, they're large businesses. And if they're growing at those explosive rates, they're taking money from the rest of the market because global GDP is roughly flat. So we've got a portfolio of 50 stocks growing 100% plus. Um, they're taking that revenue from somewhere else and and that somewhere else is the rest of the market. So look at how we've outperformed. You know, it's partly, it's partly just high returns, but it's also the fact that the market probably has done not as well as people were hoping, you know, five years ago. It's been a very difficult now there's been a bit of a rally in 2021. But, you know, you could argue from 2017 to 2020, life was pretty tough for most markets. And that was whereas that was because a handful of companies, and one of the reasons was a handful of companies were taking enormous amounts of revenue and market share um, from others. And sometimes you know it, sometimes you can see it. Sometimes you see, oh, afterpay has basically Killed credit cards in Australia or dramatically reduced credit cards in Australia. Afterpay has created tens of billions of dollars of value. Australian banks are down tens of billions of dollars value. Tesla has gone up like this. You know, the rest of the industry's come down. You know, it's, it's the rest of the auto industry has come down. You know, Shopify has gone like that. Carvana has gone like that. The e-commerce providers have tripled and the physical retailers are down. Sometimes you can literally see where that value has gone, but sometimes it just, it just must come from somewhere else in the the economy. A share of mind, share of wallet, Um, And it's so important. One of the reasons I'm bringing this up is people look at our strategy and think that's way too hard. You know, I don't get it. I can't use my my Warren Buffett, my Graham. I can't use my my principles. I can't use my screening. I can't use my free cash flow. I can't use all these things that I'm used to using. It's in the too hard basket. But you cannot outperform in today's market and then not own these companies doing this well. Because if you do have that framework, you're going to assist to that value, that traditional value framework. You will systematically miss every single good life sciences company, every single good software company, you know, every good single good fintech, and that's where the value and share of wall and share of, well of mind is going.
0: Mm. I, I do want to talk a bit about life sciences, but what I think is interesting is that some of the names that you keep mentioning, so uh, Affirm, or sorry, Afterpay and Tesla, not only are they great companies in and of themselves, but they're also almost industry creators, right? Like you look at Klarna, Affirm, Afterpay. There wasn't really a buy now, pay later, um, you know, space a few years ago, and, and there wasn't really a uh, electric vehicle car space a few years ago. So not only are they, they have true customer love, but they're really creating new industries in and of themselves as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we used to, we used to focus on that as, a, as an entire way of looking at these things. And that's the category creators. You know, it's interesting, like many years ago, and, and Afterpay is like all these, we have 50 companies. These are all 2 3% positions. We just like to talk about the ones that people are most familiar with. Because um, often they'll remember how they thought about them through their journeys. You know, I remember Afterpay runs like PayPal will squash them, credit card companies will squash them. Um, but actually end up being the opposite. You know, PayPal has responded to Afterpay basically by copying them. So has, you know, the Shopify paying for... Um, the, the, the Visa and MasterCard are actually net beneficiaries of, of the buy now, pay later, because it's splitting up you know, one transaction into four. Um, I guess there's another point that we often think about really carefully, and it's applicable to the life science as well. And that's that in any, any product or service, there's a decision point where you choose one product over another. It could be you sit down at this restaurant and not that restaurant. It could be you click Afterpay instead of PayPal, instead of putting in your long credit card details. Um, It could be you buy this car or not that car. There's always some key decision point, um, consumer decision point. So one thing I should add, we're we're basic consumer, which I can talk about if you want. Um, But there's always a decision point. And we always zoom in and try and figure out who's winning at that decision point because often who's winning in a small country or a small state can then roll that strategy out. You know, human psychology, there's certain things that seem to repeat, things that work really well in a small group of people um, are very likely to to work for, for all of us. Um, So really focusing on that decision point is also something I think we do differently. You know, we're not looking at historics in the same way. We're not looking at, we're not meeting, spending as much time with management and index overweighting what, what they're saying, what their wink, wink, nudge, nudge is saying, you know, we're really focusing on that decision
0: point because that's what determines value in every industry. Yeah. And so let's pick up on, you know, you do mention life sciences, which is a nice, nice segue. And you talk about the, the true customer love and I know you're, you're invested in Moderna. So how do you put that into the equation? Because obviously you do have that, I guess, that need at the moment from the the vaccine perspective for for customers to desire the product. But are there other aspects to Moderna that attract you to that as a as a stock?
1: Yeah, definitely. As I mean we're familiar with the company before before coronavirus. Um But the core part of our strategy in life science is ultimately simple. We want to see companies deliver. We want to see results. We don't want to guess on what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, mRNA vaccines got to a point where they're basically on the cusp of working. Moderna had one for CMV. The issue with with vaccines is they're really difficult to bring to market. Um, Think about somebody who's terminally ill with cancer with, with a few months to live. You're very morally justified in experimental treatments to look after them. Um, the ethics make sense, you know, you, you, you need to try it. You're You're very ethically justified in trying something that may or may not work. Think about vaccines, through a proper vaccine trial, you need to vaccinate huge numbers of people. They're healthy people generally. There might even be people who, who could be pregnant, for example, or have all kinds of things. The bar for safety is so exceptionally high. So it's extremely hard to commercialize these things. And Moderna was very slowly making progress with their CMV, which is the type of herpes. Um, but this was, the coronavirus was just like a jolt for them. Uh, and, and the evidence was there quite early. So Moderna created the vaccine just from the data, just from the, the virus sequence that um, was released on the internet. It's also one of the first times there was like, a, like it's, it's really that point where, where medical science became a data science. You know, this whole thing was developed and designed through data and ended up being incredibly meaningful. Um, interesting thing is this, the coronavirus gave them a ton of funding, a ton of attention, a really urgent need, and that allowed them to prove the concept. Of mRNA vaccines and gave them huge amounts of funding. So something like twenty billion of pre-orders. This is for a company that was only five billion very recently, or eight billion very recently. Um, so it's a huge amount of money that is going into this company. The good news is that because they've 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 commercialized the kind of like delivery method, they live a nanoparticle you know casing which effectively goes into your bloodstream, isn't degraded, somehow merges with cells and goes in and delivers the like all that was like years and years and years of technology technological development to do that, and it's still very difficult to do. And we can only hit certain parts of the body and certain types of cells. But once they've proven that, now it's a simple case of just changing the the, the data, changing the data sequence, the mRNA sequence, um, to cure a huge number of other diseases. So an example would be, you know, there was a coronavirus that came out uh, about over 100 years ago and still circulates and it still causes a lot of deaths in elderly you know, Moderna is very likely to be able to put through a single-shot vaccine that can vaccinate against multiple types of influenza, all kinds of historic coronaviruses, and, and obviously the more recent one, including new strands, all in one, because you can put multiple you know, multiple strands of RNA in the, one, in the one dose. So think about the commercial opportunity of that, and that is just in respiratory diseases, and this will be one of the, in our view, will be one of the major pharmaceutical companies. Now, to bring the general point, you know, how does that compare to the other stuff? Well, we knew very early on that the vaccines were getting immunos- immunological responses. I think there was a bit of, there was something not quite right about the way that all the chief medical officers around the world, certainly in Australia, said, you know, these things take two years to develop. That's not actually true. You know, swine flu went from the first few cases to a vaccine in about nine months. You know, Ebola set a precedent for also for very rapid vaccine delivery, but they effectively used their phase two, three trials to vaccinate front Trent. Frontline workers. There was, there is historical precedent. Um, it was one of the tests to know if the person talking new vaccines, uh, because if they said it always takes two to two years or more, you know, you knew they didn't actually know the kind of history of it. Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's. It had very early good data, so it wasn't our opinion that would work. We knew that it was very likely to work, and it also had this ability to roll that technology out across the entire platform. So we have a number of other companies in the life sciences that we invest in. Um, they all have the vast majority of them have revenue, all growing at triple digits plus. Um, so they've already bought uh, treatments to market, FDA approved, and winning share of wallet from physicians. And then they're using that money, that money to then invest in their pipeline, which uses the same platform technology. So we want platform technology, proven technology. We have, I think we have like really good uh, uh, people on, on life sciences, world class. You know, these are from people from the top universities in the world. I'm Looking at uh, looking at this for us, but really, the proof is in the pudding. If they've got an FDA treatment that works and, and is generating revenues, again, it's kind of like the way we look at tech, the rest of the technology space. That is a more important data point than even the smartest person in life sciences thinks. You know, the data is more important than the most important person's opinion. Um, so, so there's a lot of similarities in the way we do it as well. And it's a really helpful, about a third of our portfolios in the life sciences, it's really helpful in taming those swings across the rest of the portfolio, because there's no way around it. You know, we're fully invested in in extremely high
0: growth um, and volatile stocks. Mm, No, and I think that's a great point you made about life sciences. Companies are really data companies as well. You know, I guess in any factor of life, there's really no such thing as an overnight success. But given the the precedent and and the data that they've already accumulated over years of research it's uh you're not starting from scratch as it were um and another point i just want to is actually the this some of the things you've been saying have echoing a really great podcast um i listened to the other day it was it was a gentleman called dan mcintyre from from tyro partners in in the us and and he was talking about how when people see a situation i think the actual example was um was was dogecoin mm-hmm. and he was saying that particularly that the older generation can have this knee jerk reaction of seeing something and screaming it's absurd it's absurd it's absurd and almost them them giving that thing the attention mm-hmm. actually is what makes it real how do you I guess, yeah. how do you see see that playing out and maybe a little bit about the the intergenerational aspects as well. Yeah, those. there's of
1: things there. So look at think about Dogecoin. It's like the perfect example almost of of how we use our framework to make predictions. So explosive growth. Obviously, usage went up like that. Tech. Uh, customer love. People are just obsessed about it. They loved it. They tweet about it. They're obsessed. <laughs> they're most proud of all the cryptocurrencies. They're most proud of of their Dogecoin. Um, they'll talk about it. And like, it's 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 got this huge amount of mindshare. It's giving people pleasure just to put money in that. Um, So our framework actually gets to the right answer. Our framework says that's a buy. And I wish we were thinking like this, you know, eight years ago, we could put some more money in Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing you touched on is the intergenerational thing. That is here to stay. That is huge. Um, If a company has a funny name, like my generation will buy stock if it's got a funny meme about it. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll continue to do so in the future. And it it almost makes sense. It's like, yeah, if something's good enough to like make millions of people laugh and millions of people put a couple thousand bucks in, you're talking about huge numbers. It's not really that. It's like, let's say there's, I don't know. I don't even know the numbers, but let's say there's, I think, I think once calculated that if everybody on wall street bets, I think somebody else made the calculation invested a thousand dollars or something like 50 billion. And that is more than enough. There's a lot of very wealthy people on that, on that side as well. That's more than enough around to push more than enough to push around any stock um, and even any cryptocurrency and, and that aspect is, is really interesting. And I think that's a change that will continue, especially with the pace of social media, where a good meme can just go rip around the world, um, and result in huge amounts of demand. I mean, we don't, we don't really participate in that. I think there's, I think if you look at what's the main one, GameStop. So that was trading at way too cheap. It was like, if you think about it, it was like zero point, whatever time sales. On a company that had five billion in revenue, we lead to us. If we, if we look at the numbers, we go actually, you know, it's definitely worth something. It wasn't worth a few hundred million dollars, you know, it was definitely worth something, probably in the billions. Uh, so it's way, way, way too cheap, which which led to that huge ramp up. Um, but in general, the main way that our portfolio is affected is our companies are generally shorter by institutions, and the other side of that is invested in by retail. And so there is kind of a bit of a hot element part to our portfolio where when things move, they really move because the short sellers are buying back and the and the retail partners are buying. Um, when they fall, they can really move as well. So that obviously gives us opportunities. We generally don't sell when things move up for the reasons we mentioned. But Often there's very good entry points when you get these huge kind of retail panics like we just had. You know, We can get actually pretty aggressive and, and buy on the backside of that because we do our numbers. We know our process works. We're not using opinion. We're going straight to like the data, the revenue growth, the KPIs the independent statistics, you know, that gives us a conviction to then take the other side of the hot money flows when they go got out. Um, so, so it's 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 very relevant to us, and I think it's a fascinating part of the market that we all love to watch.
0: Yeah. I'm still now just a little bit depressed that I've spent so much of my life doing, like, 40-page PowerPoint presentations and I could have just <laughs> done a funny picture or something.
1: <laughs> well, well, sadly, well, the investment management industry
0: could have done better if we bought Bitcoins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: we're it's actually doing <laughs>
0: Never too late. I, I do want to take um, one final point as well, and sort of bring it into the current current sort of market positioning and and how inflation ties into true customer love. Because you know, inflation obviously have has a lot of market participants uh, freaking out about growth stocks in particular. So I want to dive deeper into this. The the stocks that you invest in, growth stocks, but they have true customer love. How do you think this could make them more resilient uh, to an inflationary scenario your views on that?
1: Look, there's no doubt that a lot of our companies grew throughout even the first part of the coronavirus crash. It wasn't just kind of rotation into certain sectors. Um, Look, inflation is really relevant. It's relevant in a few ways. I've actually got this weird idea that our stocks will actually benefit from that. Um, So it affects valuations and fundamentals. Now, valuations have obviously taken a hit. They already have, you know, most of these stocks are sideways over the last six months and they're growing at, like I said, 150 percent plus. Um, so they're materially bigger than they were. The valuations have already materially contracted. Um, and as, as inflation fears rise, you know, rates will rise and both, in theory, that means a higher discount rate and low valuations. In practice, it means that people just take a bit of money out of stocks and putting it at 2% for free with no risk. That's pretty compelling to a lot of investors. Um, There's no doubt that that relationship holds the way people expect it to. What doesn't, what is different is, you know, our companies should do and have been doing extremely well in inflation environments. The reason for that is, firstly, inflation environments involve rising prices. Our E-commerce platforms pass that straight through, most of them in like luxury or or in those really loved parts of the market where they have exceptional pricing power and lifting prices, you know, even more. Second issue with inflation is typically high input costs, well, most of the input for our companies is actually, you know, things like, like it's customer love, you know, realistically, IP, R&D, you know, these kinds of intangible things. They're not buying, you know, steel from a factory and turning into widgets for another factory. That's where they get squeezed. A third way it could hurt is if rising rates lead to a debt collapse. If you're over and rates go up, wipe out your cash flow and, and collapse your, the equity value of your business. Um, that is not relevant to our companies because they almost all hold net cash. Uh, and they pay a lot of stock-based comp, which obviously we have to account for and account for carefully. Um, but the reality is, is you know, the high interest rate they actually get higher cash flow um, from those things. Finally, in this particular inflationary environment, basically what we happened is we had a moment last year or a period last year where certain parts of the economy ran red hot. You know, places like e-commerce in particular comes to mind. You know, they had their best. It's like Christmas every day for some of these retail, online retailers. Um, that then broadened into a consumer boom, and it flowed into places like autos, where secondhand cars were being sold for more than they were bought new, um, to real estate, you know, really it turned into a broader consumer boom. And again, in that environment, we can expect our companies to accelerate, which is exactly what we saw in the last results. Our average growth rate increased um, over that period. Um, So pulling all that together, you have like this one-off valuation contraction, which could could continue if rates continue to rise, Um, but the fundamentals will win, you know, over any period longer than two years. That those the except the growth the growth rates are where investing in will very quickly dwarf any valuation change um, caused by inflation. So we're we're very comfortable with the current environment. Um, it's not it's, it's to be honest it's really like deflationary environments that have the worst outcomes. You know I've got family in Greece, so look at what they experienced through deflation or the eurozone in the 2000s in the aftermath of the last crisis, um, or even to a lesser extent perhaps the United Kingdom. You know after the after the 2009 crisis. You know, it's deflation, it's people pulling money in, it's prices going down, it's wages going down. That That's the environment that's that's, that's really scary and really bad for stocks. This is not like that. Um, so we are
0: kind of optimistic from here. Fabulous. And uh, yeah, the, on the point of the housing market, I did actually see the other day that there's now more real estate agents in the US than there are available homes on the market. So that just gives you a sense of how, how hot that market is right now as well. So, well, thank you so much for your time, Michael. It's been an absolute joy having you come on today. And I hope that we can get you back on at the end of this year to see if your performance has continued through 2021.
1: Thank you, Rachel. really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. So thanks for having me on. Great, thank you.